Welcome to Design Your Life, the podcast where we explore the central role design plays in our everyday lives and how, if harnessed correctly, has the power to positively transform the way that we live, design better businesses and sustainable solutions for the planet. We speak to creative entrepreneurs around the world about how they inspire their ideas to life and how they make it all work and the role design plays in their lives. I'm your host, founder of Frost Collective and author of Design Your Life, Vince Frost. At Frost Collective, we are dedicated to designing a better world. Our specialist teams work across branding, strategy, place visioning and wayfinding, solving problems with empathy and creativity to design experiences that benefit people, business and the planet. And as a proud certified B Corp, we meet the highest environmental and social standards by balancing profit with our purpose to design a better world. To find out more, head to frostcollective.com.au. Welcome to today's episode of Design Your Life. Today I catch up with Ryan Anderson, VP of Insights and Research at Miller Knoll in Michigan. Miller Knoll is a collective of dynamic brands that come together to design the world we live in. Tune in as we chat about the timeless designs of Ray and Charles Eames, designing workplaces that are genuinely inclusive and undoing behaviors that were hardwired into us during the pandemic. Uh, hey, Ryan, welcome to Design Your Life. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Vince. Thank you for having me. It's so cool to have you on the podcast today. You're in Michigan um, and uh, we're in Sydney. And uh, we're online and we're um, going to have a really good chat about, uh, I guess, workplace and how people's changing habits uh, since the pandemic or probably prior to that, too. Um, and you're, you're the VP of Insights and Research at uh, Miller Knoll, um, mm-hmm. which is, sounds like a really exciting role, uh, which <laughs> we'll unpack in a second. Uh, can you explain the, the Miller Knoll business and, and what you do? Sure. It's probably not a name that most people know yet. It's only the the name Miller Knoll has only been around for a year or two, but basically we're a collective or a family of of design focused brands. So I'm thrilled to be able to be on on your podcast knowing that you appreciate and promote good design. Absolutely. Um, the most notable brands within the family are Herman Miller Knoll, uh, as well as more than a dozen of other brands that include some well-known consumer brands like companies like Hay and Muto and in Europe, Mm -hmm. Um, but also some brands that others might not know as much. Like we have a company called Colbert Boston Sanders that makes monitor arms and ergonomic tools. So it's fairly diverse. There's uh, some amazing textile companies in there as well, but generally you can think of it as a group of companies that really care about making beautiful functional things to create really amazing spaces. And that includes workspace, but it also includes homes, hospitals, restaurants, schools, a variety of other places. Always been a huge fan of Eames uh, furniture and have collected it since I knew it existed. I'm sitting on one right now, actually. And it's awesome. just, just incredible design. And obviously, they designed um, the chairs uh, and the furniture with for Herman Miller uh, back in, what, the 50s? Yeah, even earlier. So it's kind of funny that, that how small groups of design-minded people can transform industries in the world. So Ray and Charles Eames, who were a husband and wife, Ray was mm-hmm. wife, Charles was husband, um, started their really design journey at Cranbrook Academy at, uh, in Detroit, so not too far from where I am right now. Mm-hmm. Other students there included Eero Saarinen, Harry Bertoia, and modern designers who went on to basically create some of the most notable designs for Knoll. Uh, and they were all like friends. In fact, Eero Saarinen named one of his kids Eames. Um, and so uh, they together helped to promote this idea of modernism, to move away from highly ornamental um, but not always functional pieces and to think about scale and form differently. And we're really thankful to still be able to manufacture, sell, and uh, celebrate those products today. It is incredible, isn't it, how one place like that had just naturally had that talent there at that moment in time, which has made a significant impact on the world and how we park our our butts i guess and how, how <laughs> <laughs> um and 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 why is that why, why is that a, a michigan such a, a hot spot for um furniture design 
Well, the, the roots of the furniture industry, particularly in the city where I live, Grand Rapids, go way back. Way back uh, 1800s to just the availability of timber. Uh, mm-hmm. The industry, both residential and commercial furniture, got really big here. Uh, in fact, in our local museum, there are murals suggesting that Grand Rapids could be as big as Chicago someday as Furniture City USA. Oh, wow. And um, like other industries, you know, there's just really wonderful groups of talent that kind of uh, are associated with it. But in this case, I also have to credit Detroit for uh, pioneering a lot of cool design within the auto industry. I don't know that we would have such an interesting cross-pollinization of mines uh, in a state like Michigan if we didn't have other industries. And and the fact that those designers I mentioned earlier got together at a institution specifically focused on advancing design is not an accident. You know, you need time to experiment. You need time to explore ideas. And we're really fortunate that so much good has come out of this state. Yeah. And I, I guess that we keep talking about Eames, but just um, as I've just loved their furniture so much, it's just the, the fact that I guess it was, it is from a moment in time, but it, and I guess over time it had gone, maybe, maybe it went out of fashion for a bit. It's definitely come back um and and it's kind of you kind of now it feels like it's a t- they're timeless products yeah well i th- i think that's true and i always smile because i spent a portion of my career on digital and technology initiatives when i see videos showing the year like 2040 or other sci-fi films way in the future there's oh, yeah. always some sort of Herm miller or noel products here i mean i can almost always spot something from eames um, or Saarinen or others. And I, I don't think it's totally accidental. Now, I don't know that I could say that when they were designed, people could imagine it being both emblematic of the future and the past. But when I first came to Herman Miller, and I started at Herman Miller, um, when I came in 2012, one of the leaders of the design team talked to me at length about what it means to resolve a design. And what he was talking about, he kept saying it has to be inevitable. I didn't really know what he meant by that. But what, what he meant was there's some sort of challenge in the design brief that says we need something to do this. And the ethos has been, let's just keep testing it. And if it doesn't feel like the design has fully resolved that issue, then it's not done. Mm. But once you look at it and go, yep, that feels like exactly what it should be, then it feels right. By the way, the design process can take longer. It can cost more. But if you end up with something that has a useful life, both in terms of an item that you sell to someone, but also for us as a provider of it that lasts decades and decades or even centuries, then the payoff to approach design in that way is well worth it. That's really interesting. Um, we, we've got about 40 Aeron chairs here, which I absolutely love. But someone said to me the other day, um, I think it's our head of finance, came and said, hey, did you know, she watched a show or, or some documentary on the Aeron chair, and when it was initially designed, you know, when it was <laughs> showed to people to test, they were like, well, where's the cover? Uh, where, where's oh, the yeah. kind of the padding and stuff? And that was that was quite funny that it's actually become a classic in itself. Um, people just thought it wasn't going to work, but it's incredible how popular they are as well. Oh, incredible. And it, I'll take it even farther. I mean, that design was ridiculed by some. So the, the roots of the Aeron chair, uh, it's interesting. It was actually part of a healthcare research initiative going on. Mm within her Miller by Robert Probst, who started the research team. And so in some ways, we're still trying to carry on his traditions. But um, that unique material, which we call pellicle, was partly designed to help people that are aging not get bed sores and have other problems and think mm-hmm. about a way of supporting them differently. And eventually it morphed into the chair that we now know as Aeron. And um, yeah, the first couple of years were actually a little rocky. I have some friends within within the company that were involved in that, including um, one of my uh, former team members. She uh, is is one of the only people I know that ha- still has her name on the patent of the Aeron chair. Oh. Um, and she told me stories, and others have told me stories about just how tumultuous at times it was. It took a lot of years, you know, six, seven, eight years for it finally to hit the market in the way they expected. And I wasn't at Herm Miller at the time, but I remember seeing an episode of Will and Grace, the TV show, where like an entire episode was dedicated to Will getting an air on chair. And I'm like, wow, this thing's becoming like an icon. <laughs> and uh, since then, you know, we find a little delight 
anytime we see a, a product of ours represented in the media, but you know, the Simpsons had God sitting in an Aaron chair and we've seen uh, <laughs> pre- president pictures of presidents writing the state of the union addresses or, you know, Jay-Z and other musicians cutting tracks. Like it's just really cool to think that something that your company does has uh, impacted so many facets of our, of our world in a indirect, but important way. Well, that's really interesting. I, I, I uh, you know, during the pandemic, and you'd be in the same situation. Everybody rushed home. Everybody go fuck. We got to get out of here. You know, get mm-hmm. grab a chair, <laughs> grab your laptop, um, go work at home. The ones that could, of course. And as soon as that kind of happened, I thought, ah, oh, this is gonna be interesting. What happens after that? Uh, in Australia, people put stuff out on the street. Um, you know, outside the house to be collected by the council or by, you know, whoever might want it. And I was just thinking, mm-hmm. like. There will be, like, once this is all over, there will be chairs popping up along, you know, the side <laughs> of the road. And it, it did. I mean, you started to see chairs. And people, obviously, not everybody understands the value of a chair. For some people, it's just a chair. You know, especially the Aeron chair. They might not, they don't realize that it's, just, you know, several thousand dollars probably um, a value. And certainly, uh, I mean, there's a lot of copies out there as well. So I, whenever I see a chair of, of interest, I go, ooh. I just gotta go check that out, see if that's a legit one. <laughs> and when it is, I take it myself and um, yeah. take it home. But I guess I'd be sh- I'd be shocked if you found Aaron chairs on the corner. I've I've oh, I, I was is. just in New York and I saw a few chairs being discarded on a corner. I'm always curious to see what they're like. But I think at this point, most people know that there is value. In in yeah. fact, it's it's part of the challenge of creating a product that can last decades. Is we do end up competing with our own product in the open marketplace. You know, the, a used Aaron chair still holds up really well. But yeah. yeah, we work really hard to make sure that we make stuff that ideally, you know, lasts long enough and is valued enough that it never ends up in a dump somewhere. Well, it's, yeah, that's interesting too. Just the idea that do we need any more chairs? Do we need? Have we not perfected it by now? Good. I mean, that's a good question. We've had um, about thirty, just over thirty thousand people use our work from home tool, which is uh, specific to the Herm Miller brand. It's just wfh.hermiller.com. It's there just to help people have better work from home experience. It gets into do you have natural light, plants, etc. But one yeah. of the questions we ask is, you know, what, what what kind of equipment do you have? And as far as chairs. I think 24% right in there, 23, 24% of people said they have a fully adjustable chair. I'm still shocked at how many people are oh. spending two or three days a week working from like four-legged dining room chairs. Wow. Uh, it's it's not great. In fact, the um, Office of National Statistics in the UK had this really interesting discovery in the fall. It was covered by The Guardian. Uh, there were some researchers looking at like labor participation rates, and they were looking at the effects of long COVID and discovered that 62, 63,000 people had left the UK workforce due to back pain caused from working from home. Um, they weren't looking for that initially, but it was kind of like, well, what happened to this group of people? And so I actually think, you know, I'm, I'm biased, but I actually think that when it comes to really good chairs, particularly when we start talking about working from home, mm. that it's still a huge, huge opportunity and lots of problems to be solved there. Yep. Well, let's come back to that. Let's let's have a quick chat about your upbringing because um, obviously you weren't always involved in this, or were you? Were you always involved in furniture? <laughs> Did you grow up, you know, fascinated by um, you know furniture and products, etc.? No. No, um, I uh, my grandpa was uh, he he worked in manufacturing at one of the smaller furniture companies. I didn't really know anything about his job, but when I went off to um, to university, I said to my roommate, who's also from Grand Rapids, "Well, if there's one thing I'm not going to do, it's work in furniture, and in particular office furniture." And I remember <laughs> saying to him, "Could you imagine anything more boring than working oh in office God, furniture?" Yeah. I I was not interested in the auto industry either. I mean, I was I had my sights set on something very different, and um, I did start to just as I got interested in my career, poke my nose around enough to learn that, wow, these furniture companies, and there's there's a bunch of us, seem to really value research, development, innovation in a way that's pretty surprising. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, you know, I got involved enough to take an internship with uh, another manufacturer in our space, and from then on, I was hooked. I've tried to leave the industry a couple times, but. 
I'm still fascinated by it. You know, what's what's most interesting, sometimes it's the objects, you know, like an incredible chair. Mm-hmm. But a lot of it for me is just the impact of these spaces on our lives in different ways. It's something mm-hmm. that most of us don't think a lot about, but we traverse in and out of spaces throughout our day, throughout our week. And, and uh, you know, if they're, if they're well-designed, they can make really fantastic positive impacts on us. If they're not... It can cause anything from slight annoyance to outright, you know, major problems, including health problems. And um, so it's really for us how spaces impact people. And then if we can understand that, then we can figure out what the what the furniture mm-hmm. and the textiles want to be. Yeah, yeah. And and how did so how did you get into from someone who didn't particularly like furniture or wanted or the furniture industry? How did you get into that? What did you study? Yeah, I studied marketing. I was at Michigan State University, and I sent out um, a bunch of resumes to Grand Rapids-based companies. And um, one of our now competitors picked me up for the summer, and I was I was amazed. I was really fascinated by the whole thing. Um, I had only worked retail, like my mom owned a gift store growing up, and and all I knew was retail environments. And so for the first week. Uh, of my internship, I kept going over to this guy who had hired me and saying to him, hey, Dan, I'm going to go use the bathroom. Because in the world of retail, if you left the retail floor, you had to tell somebody where you were going. And then I'd come back and I'd say, hey, Dan, I'm back back from the bathroom. And he'd look at me like, what? And so after four or five days, he finally said, why do you keep telling me when you go to the bathroom? And I said, well, I don't, don't you need to know? And he's like, no, I, I don't need to know. And I don't want to know. But th- what was so funny was like, that was my, like, I'm thankful for Dan. That was my entree into life in the office. And I, I learned um, that companies, yes, like Herman Miller, but also Steelcase, Hayworth, other furniture companies were not only designing environments, but really trying to improve work experiences. And I don't know, at that point, I, I got hooked. And so I, I actually um, took a full-time job before I even graduated and graduated at night on my own um, because the, the whole research and development side of the industry was really interesting. I will give you one more um, other moment in time that was really important for me. And it was right around 2004 or 2005 when I was in the industry. I was in sales, actually. I'd gone from marketing to sales and I was working with some some customers. And one of them was a firm who basically called me up and said, nobody's sitting in our cubicles. And I was like, what do you mean by that? And they're like, well, the IT team installed something called wireless. And now people are like sitting all over the place, like in the cafeteria. (laughs) And the reality was office design, forget the furniture, I'm talking the overall design, was super formulaic. It was you hire 300 people, you get 300 desks, 300 desktop computers, 300 desk chairs. It It was great in a sense. But the people had no autonomy. They were tethered to those spaces. And so at that moment, and in the months that, that followed it, I was like, wow, this is all going to change. Like if, if people are not tethered by a desktop computer, if they're not tethered by an Ethernet cable, then the entire industry and, and more importantly, mm-hmm. the entire design of our workspaces will change. And then, you know, m- me and many others spent the next 15 years waiting for it to change more quickly. <laughs> and, it, and it didn't. And now, of course, we're in this moment of acceleration where the world is catching up to what what the work had how the work had begun to change years ago well i guess the pandemic just pushed it massively quickly in terms of i mean thank god that they were moving towards that anyways otherwise we would have been really stuck yeah the, <laughs> stuck was, in the office tethered exactly uh, the, the the term that i wish the world used and embraced and understood more is distributed working so distributed working is just it was the term that everybody kind of was using to say the work's spreading out. You know, it's spreading out across uh, a floor. It's spreading out across a building, a city, the world. And sometimes that meant people in lots of different offices. Sometimes it meant somebody at home or on an airplane or, um, you know, a hotel. And the dynamics of that spreading out, of that distributed working, is really the driver. It, 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 it's been around forever. I'm asked frequently, like, what does it look like to provide video environments for hybrid teams? And I'm like, well... Not that different than the way it looked to provide video environments for people that were distributed between seven different offices. It's just now mm. that not not all of them are in offices. But for whatever reason, 
um, there was this very binary view that work was either like you're an office worker, and if you're an office worker, you're going to be in the office all the time, which was not true. Yeah. Or you're, uh, back then, you know, we'd call it telecommuter. You're telecommuter, you're exclusively working from your home. That wasn't really true either. Mm-hmm. Um, it was much more dynamic, and to your point, yeah, that everything was accelerated. And so now organizations are playing a, a 10 or 15-year catch-up. Uh, to, to how work has changed in a, in a matter of a couple of years. And of course, the pandemic changed it even further. Yeah. Well, we, we here in Sydney, we, we've been, I remember moving here 20 years ago and, and we were working on a lot of, and we still do a lot of um, office spaces, uh, helping brands like Commonwealth Bank, for example. We worked on eight of their headquarters uh, with unpacking their values and their, um, you know, helping to kind of uh, create spaces that people are thriving in. Uh, mm-hmm. Or calm spaces, etc. But I remember when they brought in um, activity-based working, um, mm-hmm. which is not the same as it. Well, I guess is linked to distributing working. Um, but it, but it's um, I remember being perplexed by that. I mean, the, the, the spaces are like uh, at the time are like you know advertising agencies, big open spaces, amazing mm-hmm. facilities, gyms. Uh, you know, showers, all kinds of stuff that kind of en- enable people to have a really good working environment. But I didn't understand at the time while they were reducing, I think, 20% of the desks they, they reduced. So people, like, you didn't have a desk and you <coughs> were not encouraged to have a desk. Part of the conversation was like, well, we don't want to have people stuff on a desk. We, they can have a locker, um, but and they're going to be they're going to be mobile. And um, for a long time, it was just quite wow. This is really interesting. I wonder if this is going to work. And if clearly, it has worked. But now, let's talk about the situation today, where those organizations are really struggling to get people back into their beautiful spaces because people are, or they might be coming in a couple of days a week. Um, but they're not embraced that 100% back in the studio or the office. That this is probably never going to happen. You, you obviously, you have the whole insights team there and constantly doing research around this. But what is the future? Well, what is the current situation and what is the future of the workspace? Sure. Well, I probably should give a little more background in that I have this fantastic team that's uh, distributed around the world, and we do research, but we also have a separate group whose sole job is to share insights. So Mm -hmm. sometimes I say the research is the digging, but the insights are the gold. So when it comes uh, specifically to Sydney, and I know you're not asking about Sydney, but I will just tell you, it's my favorite place to do research because I think Sydney has been farthest along the curve as far as progressive experimental workplaces of any city on the planet. Um, the move, as you referenced, towards activity-based working, which is basically a way of of mixing up the floor plate, providing a lot of different types of spaces, not just desks, and having them all shared, um, mm-hmm. is something that... You know, we saw in Australia a long time ago, way before it was being tried in other parts of the world. I, th- I think Australia has also generally effectively moved beyond it. But if I zoom out mm. to the question you, you asked, yeah, we're in an interesting point in time. Um, a couple things come to my mind when I think about your question. The first is that I don't think most organizations had a really clear look at what was happening with their offices before the pandemic. There's not good, reliable data on occupancy levels, uh, maybe like we have right now. But I, I generally know it to be lower than most people expect. You know, For those customers of ours that do have that data, finding 50, 60, 65% of the assigned people in a building on a day was very normal. Mm. Um, desk utilization uh, was sometimes down um, really low, but on average, I think it was 30, 35%. Because again, people were doing work elsewhere, yet the design of offices were largely filled with rows and rows of desks and 12-person mm. and conference rooms. And I don't think that they were necessarily performing that well. You know, real estate's expensive and people weren't Mm. necessarily gaining as much value out of them as they could. And now we've had this reset where people in in many, but not all parts of the world, um, went on a prolonged time working from home. And what we're seeing is you've got some markets where it looks a lot like before the pandemic. That includes big geographic areas like the Middle East, but I'd also point to cities like Miami in the US. It's really not that different than the way it was. You've got other cities that feel like, wow, 
where is everyone? Like, why isn't anyone in the office and why isn't anyone downtown? I think cities mm. like Minneapolis, as an example, have struggled. Yeah. Um, and then you've got situations like even if I compare something like The Hague and Amsterdam where you might find interesting differences. We've studied uh, a, a variety of factors here. And there's a few things that I think is, is worth knowing. One is that even in those cities where occupancy levels are low, they're slowly ticking up. And when I say slowly, I'm talking about like a couple percentage points per month. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that people worked very hard to rearrange their lives during an extended period of quarantine and um, remote working. And they're having to undo that. And so that's, you know, we, we did a, a U.S.-based survey in uh, September, specifically asking people like, hey, if you can work flexibly, why don't you go to the office on a given day? The top factors were commute time and distance, but also uh, overall mental, emotional, physical well-being. You know, we've got a, a situation where people are burned out. There's mental and emotional health issues. It's natural to want to stay close to home if you or somebody you know is struggling. Um, caregiving, uh, not, not just child care, but elder care uh, mm. was very high on the list. And the one that frankly, I like talking about the most is in second place was overscheduled meetings. This to me is probably the biggest hindrance that we're not paying enough attention to, which is if organizations tried to recreate what they did in the office through meetings, and today the commute turned into work time and someone might have five or six hours of meetings on their calendar, why on earth would they go to an office? Why on earth mm. would they go anywhere, a coffee shop, a co-working yeah. space? And uh, we have, uh, in our qualitative research, discovered this as well. People are really struggling with just how overscheduled they are. Now, I'll throw one other little bit of data at you before I pause. But um, cool. Miller Knoll is a founding member of this group called Future Forum. So it's mm -hmm. a collaboration between Slack, Boston Consulting Group, a group called MLT, and Miller Knoll. We survey 10,000 people every quarter. And wow. we, one of the things we ask about is employees' desires and flexibilities right there at the top. 80% want more location uh, flexibility, but a higher percent, 94%, want more schedule flexibility. And when you really get into what that means, people want more control over when they do certain types of work. It's not that people want to work from 2 in the morning till 9 in the morning. It's that if you want to do focused work or if you want to do something that's more social or if you want to do something co-creative, mm -hmm. you don't want to find yourself trying to fit this in 45 minutes in between meetings four weeks from now. You want mm -hmm. that free calendar as best you can to, um, to really have more governance and autonomy. And we have seen better activity in the office, particularly social, collaborative, com camaraderie in the office, when people have the freedom to, to clear their calendars to do it. And did, did, was this the research arm of Millenor, was that started because, like, was there, was there a slowdown in kind of purchasing of furniture, office furniture? Or, or, I mean, obviously, there must have been, has there been a slowdown since the pandemic as well? Or, or has it increased? I mean, that's interesting. People, if people aren't building these ten thousand square, you know, meter um, office spaces like they, well, but they are still doing it. Strangely enough, <laughs> still because Actually, it takes such a long time. But um, what's most interesting is is that there is this move towards high quality. I mean, what, what mm. we're seeing is organizations are still creating spaces. Yeah. They might be a little bit smaller, but they're better. Um, to your earlier point about our research teams, I mean, Herm Miller and Noel and, and some of our other brands ha have done research for a long time. Herm Miller yeah, yeah. started theirs in the 60s. Noel started in the 40s. So we're carrying on that tradition on behalf of, of all of our, of our brands. But um, what we're seeing is instead of there being lots and lots of space dedicated to rows and rows of desks, they might have smaller amounts of space. And sometimes not very smaller, 5%, 10%, but the real estate savings are huge. And then what you see on those floors is more uh, varied in terms of the types of spaces and the type of experience. It's more like a cityscape. You're going to find places for individual concentrative work, which people actually really struggle with. Many people do at home. You're going to find more project-based creative spaces where you can really immerse yourself. You're going to see more spaces that feel almost like internal event spaces, places for community assembly where groups can do like two, three-day meetings and workshops. And all of this harkens back, interestingly enough, to a concept that 
came around after World War II in Germany called Bürolandschaft, which means uh, office landscape. Like it was urban planning principles applied to an office. And today, what you're seeing is almost something very similar. It's like a cityscape. Why? Because the office, in a sense, needs to compete with the richness of the urban landscape. And so Mm. you don't just go there to be social, but you do want a place that feels like a coffee bar or a bar, but you also need a place to go do two hours with heads down with a spreadsheet. And then you might want a neighborhood, by the way, neighborhood based environments is, is kind of what's replaced activity based working in a lot of environments. And so the variance of what's on those floors is really encouraging to us. Um, we, we have always excelled at uh, those sort of products, not just making cheap rows of desks. And so, yeah, it's not all bad. The other thing I'll just tell you is that we, you know, we're supporting work wherever it happens, and we're supporting a lot of activities beyond work. So if I look as an example of at our entree into gaming, like Herman Miller's had a very successful global entree into gaming furniture. If we look at healthcare environments, legal, there's a lot of spaces that are getting, rightfully so, a bunch of attention because the spaces aren't supporting the people as well as they could. So workplace is part of it, but it's not all of it. What is the best example you've ever seen of an inclusive workplace? Oh boy, you're t- first of all, you're touching on like my my passion right there. Like for me, the most important Sorry. thing. Well, no, I'm I, I'm like oh edit <laughs> edit Ryan because you're gonna talk for like the next twenty. Oh, minutes. here I, we go. I'll He's be brief. I, no, I don't no, think, no, don't. Well, I don't think a lot of places have really excelled at being inclusive, and the litmus test for me is the degree to which they foster a sense of belonging. Simple test would be like if somebody walks in the door, are they going to look around in the first five or 10 minutes and feel like, yeah, this space is for me. Like this is, this was designed as a place to help me have an experience, whether that's being productive or being social, that just feels like I, I, I'm really thankful for it. It feels really right. Or is there something about the environment that causes me to feel like I need to pretend uh, to be, you know, the professional version of me that I'm really not. Uh, and so I'll just tell you that in the U.S., we've had a focus on accessibility. That's fine. That's like, you know, get the power outlets high enough to reach them from a wheelchair. It's like a baseline. It's important, but it's not near far enough. Um, and then occasionally we'll hear talk of, of what's known as universal design. The idea is there, like, can you create one product that suits everyone really well? It's incredibly aspirational, but the trouble is it doesn't always point you to, like, how you go about that. And so inclusive design for us starts, we're being quite literal, with including a lot more people you serve in the design process. So if you can get to know the people, this mm. is human-centered design, right? Get to yeah. know them as people. Find out what they really struggle with. It's so much more varied than mm. maybe people might initially think. But yeah. the more you know, the more you can take a design or like the design of a space or design of a product and serve a lot more people. I'm going to answer your question about the best inclusive space in a minute, but I'll give you an example. Um, We have a a height adjustable table product um, in the Herm Miller portfolio designed by a guy named Brian Alexander. And when he was designing it years ago, I had the chance to work with him on a variety of inclusive design projects. He didn't really like the way that a lot of sit-to-stand height adjustable tables were controlled. Because if you look at the little control thing there's often a couple of little arrows there it's like and it's black and the arrows are kind of gray and he was frustrated that if you didn't have good fine motor skills you couldn't really get to that arrow if you had limited visual acuity you couldn't quite see the arrow and he's super passionate about um, neurodiversity and he was saying that uh, when you adjust a sit-stand table, because there's just a little bit of latency in those motors, it can cause somebody, say on the oh, autism God. spectrum, to feel a sense of frustration uh, mm. and pause for a moment as to whether or not they're doing it right. So when he mm. created this simple adjuster paddle for that table, it was a piece of neoprene that you could hit up or down without even looking at it. But if you looked at it, it, it contains a little LED light. So the minute you touch it, it gives positive feedback like, you did it right, even if this takes a second. And not surprisingly, as soon as it was released, people wanted that adjuster on like all of our tables. So that, for me, is a great example of inclusive design because he was talking 
with people. Like he wasn't speculating this. Like he and, and I shouldn't just say he it was the research team and the product yeah, team yeah. as well, going and finding out about all this stuff. And so, you know, in our work today, we think about a broad range of of uh, users. Um, certainly. Uh, racial and ethnic diversity is important when we get into things like code switching and how exhausting it can be in the office. But we're looking at neurodivergence. We're looking. There was just a fascinating study on uh, the challenges of of women uh, experiencing menopause in the workplace done in the UK uh, by the Ministry of Labor. We've picked up on some of that. We just want to understand like all of these different conditions. And so if we decide like as an example to go create a conference room or some sort of other part of the office. The more you can kind of mentally go through, what did we learn from all those folks about what they struggle with, the more that the space can be designed well. To your point about inclusivity, I will say, I think there are a few spaces uh, that I think of in Sydney that have done a wonderful job with both inclusive and biophilic design. But the one I'll put like as my answer is recently... We helped to design um, the Harkin Institute, uh, which is a school of public policy in the U.S., uh, honoring uh, or recognizing Senator Tom Harkin, who was that original senator who sponsored the Americans with Disability Act, who said to his team, if you're going to create a center for me, I want it to be the most inclusive space um, that you can. And we've got a case study on it right now. But again, it was all just about trying to understand the users trying to understand what sort of situations we could solve, what sort of real or perceived barriers we could eliminate in the design process. And there is no perfect inclusive design, but better than, certainly better than what you would typically find. Wow. Well, that's good. That was your I know, spot. man. You tapped into like <laughs> – I could talk about this one all day long. And, again, oh, if, wow. if there's like one thing that I just come back to is if, if I'm ahead of corporate real estate as an example, I'm sinking $100 bucks into a real estate portfolio. Like mm-hmm. if that space doesn't cause the people that work there to feel like they belong there, they're part of a community, they feel a greater sense of connection to the organization, then do you get a good return on that real estate investment? I, I don't think so. Like it's there for the people. If it doesn't work for the employees, it doesn't work. Oh, it's really interesting you say that. And, and I think that organizations, technology organizations like Google, Facebook, et cetera, they were kind of, in a way, Google really kicked everybody up the backside uh, in terms of workspace because not only were they ahead of the game in terms of wanting to create a place for people to thrive in uh, and a creative, creative places, it actually then became competition for HR, for people working in banking were then attracted by Google, of, you know, to because because they, they it's the, the the culture, the place, the workspace, etc. was very much part of their brand. You must have incredible offices where you guys are. No, well, you guys are the experts. You we, must we, have. Are you, are you working from home every day? No, I have worked in what we now call hybrid since 2014, yeah. right? Spending two or three oh. days in one of our facilities here in Michigan and spending a couple of days from home. For me mm-hmm. as, a, as a researcher, my home office is a place of experimentation. Um, I, I always encourage people to embrace the role of designer when they think about working from home. Like that is your workplace. You are the designer. You need to constantly tweak it and and make it work for you. But we have incredible spaces and they are focused on creating an amazing sense of belonging. They're very amenity rich. And when I say amenity rich, I'm not talking about free kombucha, although I'd take it if we want to. What I'm talking about is uh, there are, are quiet places of respite so that if you're feeling like really stressed and you go to the office, you don't feel like you have to go home to just take a few minutes. There's these, these rooms overlooking like water with um, lounge chairs, even even a blanket just to like sit. Maybe you've got, you know, maybe you're on the, hy- uh, the, the um, neurological spectrum, you want a hyposensitive environment, or maybe you're stressed, or maybe you're just, you know, having a rough day. Um, there's uh, workout facilities, there's outdoor working areas, which even though we live in Michigan, I greatly value. Um, but there's also just really social spaces. And, you know, you can turn a corner and find a great place to chill out with a, uh, another employee in a womb chair or an Eames lounge chair. That doesn't, you know, that doesn't suck. That's pretty amazing. So anywhere I go, for the most part on earth, this is one of like the greatest perks of my job. We have our spaces, you know, including our showroom and showrooms and offices all over the world, as well as our dealers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's actually one of the challenges for, for me, Vince, and for us is that 
I know that office connotes something kind of unpleasant to a lot of people. And when you've spent Mm. 30 years, this is a privilege and a blessing, working in really amazing spaces that don't feel super hierarchical, they don't feel super controlling, they feel just beautiful and Mm. enjoyable. It's like we're fighting against a brand stigma um, not mm. for our companies, but for the office sometime. And, I, and I, I noticed that a lot of the companies we serve, and we serve a bunch of them that are remote first or that have gone like more progressively hybrid, a lot of them won't even call their offices offices. They'll just call them studios or, or, yeah. um, or hubs or whatever. And so, yeah, we, we do our best to try to get the people that we serve into our spaces, not to show off, but just honestly more so they can hang out for a while. And just have this mental picture of, well, what's right for us might not be right for you, but let's figure out what's right for you because what you currently know isn't the only thing that's possible. Yeah. I think um, I've always referred to, I I never refer to what we do as work, and I never refer to our studio as an office. And that's deliberate. I always correct people going, yeah, I'll come to your office. No, I'll come to your studio. It's just, I don't know, it might sound, it's a big difference because it actually is, it's, it's not a workplace. It's actually a um, connecting. It's connecting, it's the energy, it's the vibe, it's exploration. It's, it's a fun place, you know, it's like it's playful. Um, yeah. Whereas you don't think of the office as, as that. So I think that we're, you know, I often said that like the, the big corporate headquarters that we work with now are, they look like advertising agencies. And that's, I guess they've learned from that creating creative spaces for people to flourish in, to, to help people, positive energy and people's focus on people's well-being. Yeah. It's really, really, not just about productivity, but it's about generally caring about their their well-being, which is really cool. Well, if I think about some of the, the companies we work with that have really pushed this, and I'm thinking of LinkedIn as an example, Atlassian, not all tech companies. In fact, some tech companies have really struggled to make this change, and I've seen great examples in insurance and finance, et cetera. Some of these spaces almost hearken to a really nice airport lounge. Like if you've had the privilege of getting into like a really yeah. nice one, you go in, there's a bar that feels very social, just invites interactions. But there's also these places where you can get almost this sense of respite and restoration. There's other places to do concentrative heads down work. You know, mm-hmm. these offices might not have um, scotch uh, or, or a place to do mini golf or whatever, but it, it's clearly just expressing... We get it. This is probably not a place where you sit and do desk work for eight hours. They should still have desks, don't get me wrong, um, but mm-hmm. it's not going to dominate the floor plan. Uh, and I think it's a really like wonderful way of shaking things up. We really encourage organizations to try to pilot and prototype a little bit. There's no reason that that an organization can't try a little bit of space like this and feel like it's if it's right for the employees. It's got to also feel right for the culture. Like if you try some of the things that Google have done, has, have done and some companies have, and you put it in the middle of your, you know, hedge fund <laughs> or law firm, it might feel too out of context. So you still have to do something that's right for, for you. But the principles are there, right? It's about mm. kind of letting people have more choice, providing more like a greater variety of spaces, allowing people to swing from very social camaraderie to very focused, concentrative. And that means that it can't be uniform. That's probably like the thing that mentally people need to to move beyond is if you look around your space and 80% of it looks like the rest of it, it's probably not providing the variety that people Mm. might need. And the good news is you don't have to throw all the stuff out that you've got. Uh, You don't have to, you know, bust down all the walls or throw out furniture. You can just begin to like vary it, uh, augment it Mm. just like you would in your home. It's interesting that when you, I don't know, maybe a year ago or so, kind of had this thought like hang on a minute i think i was moving house or moving studios and going hang on the bulk of my home what's in it is for sitting down (laughs) the bulk of in the studio is for sitting down like it's Mm. all this furniture is about sitting down and sometimes you walk into a room and go well there's chairs there's a couch there's a table and dining chair like how much sitting down do we need to do for goodness (laughs) sakes it's like it's, we're, we're, it's just a lot of different kind of, I guess, f- during the course of the day in your workspace, there's moments where you're kind of casual seating, you're more formal, you're, uh, you know, I don't know, it's different ways of seat sitting to throughout your, uh, I guess, your home life, but also your work life. It's, it's quite interesting that um, not one chair does everything. 
Well, that that's true. And I actually think we should be talking about active working postures more like we do mm. in classrooms, which it's quite common when we, when we help with the school design for that. But like real quick, if you think about what's around you, lounge furniture at a lower height, mm. very social. Uh, you mm. get up to like a 30-inch high desk. That is by far the most formal and task-focused. That's what most desks are at. You get mm. to a counter or bar. Interesting because it, it can be both um, task-focused, but it's very social. We need to make sure we don't mm. exclusively do that because it does exclude people that have a challenge reaching those. But mm. then... One of the places that people love are project rooms where you can stand, transition between the edge of the room, the middle of the room. We have some room designs that we promote around project spaces mm. where we're actively saying, put less furniture in there, which I know sounds right. crazy, but we'll put like a guitar pick shaped table so that nobody has to do a bob and weave to see each other. If a camera's in the room, it's pointing at one edge, so they've got the same view got a lot more circulation space and then let's activate those walls because a conference room is typically like you're sitting there there's a screen everybody's staring at the screen if there's a mm. whiteboard like somebody's rear end is like inches from your face <laughs> and so a project room can have shifting areas of focus with whiteboards and tack boards and other things throughout the space and encourage shifting areas of focus so even if you're sitting you're tracking with different places in the room and you know personally if i ran a facility and most of my spaces were just conference rooms i'd convert some of them to either owned or shared project rooms right away because it's very difficult to do that sort of group co-creative work particularly because it's long mm. duration on video you can use tools like mural and and, and and miro and you can still use those in the office too by the way but there's something about like getting up and getting over to a wall with a couple other people with some post-it notes in your hand or an expo marker that people usually love. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's far more physical, isn't it? You're kind of you're using your whole body in those meetings as opposed to just your brain and your uh, arm. Um, tell us about your podcast because you have your own podcast as well. Yeah. Um, we have a podcast called Looking Forward, Conversations on the Future of Work. We're preparing our third season. It started mm -hmm. out... Um, in 2020 when we were noticing how many senior leaders of organizations had taken an interest in the workplace but didn't know much about it. Mm -hmm. So traditionally, like when, when it comes to our, our B2B uh, office furniture type sales, we're working with people in roles like facilities management, VP of corporate real estate, workplace strategy. We wanted to serve them but we wanted to serve them by helping them have conversations with CEOs, chief human resource officers, CFOs, chief legal officers, and others about what is the value of these physical spaces and what do we do with them. And so mm. we're, um, it's been a ball, man. I, I, it just unexpected joy. So we, what we haven't done is gone super deep into like specific design strategies with interior designers. We can do that separately. We have a, a webinar series. It's people talking at a very high level about how work is changing. Um, one of my favorite guests was John Powell, who leads the Othering and Belonging Institute at Berkeley, talking about belonging. What is it? How do you begin to think about that in a space? We've had the head of real estate innovation from MIT talking about smart buildings and technology. And what is this all about? Uh, we've had folks from McKinsey and uh, organizations like Better Up, which is an a employee well-being organization, all coming at it from different facets, sharing what they know. But ultimately, it gets back to like, what do we do with these physical spaces? And I personally couldn't train up anyone in our company or anywhere else on where the workplace is going better than going through what our guests have to say. The other thing mm -hmm. I'll say about it is we decided years ago that we were not going to be a research and insights team that that did everything in house that thought that we were the smartest in the world. Like yeah. we were going to, the, the phrase that I kept using is maybe we'll be the smartest in the room, but if not, we should definitely be pouring wine for the people that are. And so <laughs> we have a very large network of people from a really surprising variety of areas that we've tried to feature and, and we'll slip some of our own research in there too. But often we curate the topics based on what we know is important from our research. And then we let other people bring their insights to keep it interesting and to keep us growing. And, and it's a lot of fun. Well, that's really cool. So what's the podcast 
um, called? It's called Again? look. It's it's Miller Knowles looking forward conversations on the future of okay. work. I have to say I'm loving okay, talking cool. to you because, and I'm probably being too long winded because typically I'm behind the mic trying to say as little <laughs> as possible, um, and it's fun to be able to unpack this with you. God, I I, I just going to say I love your energy, uh, <laughs> and I'm I'm really actually encouraged. I'm excited about the future of of how we live and work as well. Um, I know people were feeling pretty down and gloomy about it um, over the last little while, but I mean, it's so cool to catch uh, catch up with you and hear your energy and, and excitement about it in the future. And I guess the question I always ask at the end of the podcast is, uh, have you designed your life? I, I think so. Um, first, I'm going to say that one of the reasons You've I'm- You've certainly so- designed your hair. Your hair is beautiful, <laughs> damn it. It's kind of you to say. Um, yeah. yeah, as my as my gut grows, I'm relying on my hair to distract. So thank you. Um, uh, you know, I, I'm optimistic because I know the world's in a bunch of change right now, but we've had the privilege of working with organizations that embrace flexibility and remote work. And we've yeah. done studies on the future of, of how homes are evolving, et cetera. There's so much good out there. I'm not, I'm not um, overly concerned about the long term. I do think short term there are some hiccups. Um, as far as designing my life, yeah, we um, we think a lot, like in my family, about how much time we might have. You know, there's uh, there's that old phrase of memento mori. I don't know if you ever come across memento mm. mori, but it basically yeah. is an old Latin phrase for remember death. How uplifting is that? <laughs> yeah. but, it, but it was meant to uplift because it was basically like, hey, you got X amount of time. Like, what are you going to do with it? You don't have forever. Like, you're you're stewarding whatever time you've got. And yeah. um I am generally pretty feeling pretty good that if you know I were to kick the bucket tomorrow or today that I made the most out of the time I've got and I'm going to do that tomorrow too as long as I get to keep doing it. Well, let's hope you don't because uh, you've got a lot more to <laughs> offer. <laughs> uh, well, Ryan, fantastic catching up with you. I really, really thank you for this uh, conversation. I'd love to see you in Sydney one day or I'll come to America and see you over there too. I will find you when I'm there next, which I hope is sooner than later, because I love everything that's going on in Sydney, uh, all the timber construction, the biophilic design, yeah. but also, you know, hey, it's it's uh, winter in Michigan, so it, it sounds, <laughs> sounds pretty nice to be almost anywhere else. And you got a Griffin game tonight to go to. Going to an ice hockey game. Yep. We, you know, being in Michigan, we kind of think we're Canadian. Um, and so <laughs> hockey is. Uh, I'm going with my 16 year old daughter. She's a big hockey fan too. Oh, and cool. uh, we'll be we'll be screaming uh, screaming on the ice here soon. Okay, fab. Have a great time. Thank you, buddy. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening in to today's episode of Design Your Life with Ryan Anderson, VP of Insights and Research at Miller Knoll. Tune to the next episode where I'll be catching up with Bill Amberg from London, the legendary leather worker who has taken his craft across all sectors of design, creating timeless works of art that will last for centuries. Thanks for listening to this episode of Design Your Life. If you'd like to find out more about how you can design your life, head to the website at designyourlife.com.au. If you found this episode inspiring, Please don't forget to review and subscribe. If you have any ideas or like to get in touch, we would love to hear from you. Send us an email at hello at frostcollective.com.au.